0: How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon. By the gate of bath Rabbin. your nose is like a tower of Lebanon, which looks towards Damascus. Your head crowns you like carmel, and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruits. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine.
1: It goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O my beloved. O that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breasts. If I found you outside, I would kiss you and none would despise me. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand is under my head and his right embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leading on her beloved? Under the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labour with you, there she who bore you was in labour. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are like flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised
0: we, we have, have a little sister, sister and, and she, she has, has no breasts, breasts. What, what shall we, we do, do for our sister on, on the day when she, she is spoken for if, if she is a wall we will build on her a battlement of silver if but if she is a door we will enclose her with boards of cedar
1: i was a wall and my breasts were like towers then i was in his eyes as one who finds peace solomon had a vineyard at Balhaman. He let out the vineyard to keepers. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. My vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, may have the thousand, and the keepers of the fruit, two hundred.
0: O you who dwell in the gardens, with companions listening for your voice, let me hear it.
1: Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices.
2: Uh, Just a little warning that uh, your nose is like a tower of Lebanon is not highly recommended as a chat up line at after eights. But everybody wants to be loved, and even those who have had a bad experience of love or maybe feel they've never been loved know at least what it is to want to be loved. I have the extraordinary privilege of coming from a home where even today as I return to visit my 87-year-old mother as I have this week, I find that I'm in the company of one who loves me. It's a wonderful experience. To experience unconditional and unreserved, exclusive, all-encompassing, I- encompassing, intimate and accepting love. Do you know it's genuinely liberating? To be loved is to be secure to be loved is to be happy in one sense, given that we're relational beings. To be loved is to be whole. To be loved is to be free. And at least one key aspect of this poem it we've been studying for three weeks is to reestablish what it means to be loved. Particularly in a culture where there's been a total collapse of understanding of God's love and therefore in an age of inevitable insecurity and uh, enslavement, the Song of Songs was written in order to re-establish a proper definition of genuine love and in, to enable its reader to pursue love in a safe way. And today we're going to look at these final couple of chapters. It's much, much more like a, a kind of standard work-through teaching of a passage like we are, are used to, and we're going to see a love like this, this is what true love looks like. you can see that there are two ways to love. There's another way, not a love like this. There's another way and it's not a good way. And finally, this is where the, the drive comes at the end, a lover like no other. My aim is that we grasp that we are loved more deeply than we could ever have imagined. To realize that God loves you and that there is a love like this for you whoever you are, and that in discovering this love of God who loves you with an intimacy and an intensity that you will never find in all the loves held out to us in this world. To discover this love is to find security and joy and completion and intimacy and liberty. So it's a big, big agenda we've got. And chapter seven, verse nine through to eight, seven, see one of the final presentations of true love with apologies to Faith Evans. I've given this uh, great song, by the way. I've given this the title, uh, A Love. You're looking completely nonplussed. Anyway, there you go. Uh, With apologies to Faith Evans, a love like this. You're gonna see it's intimate, it's secure, it's exclusive, it's intimate, verses nine through 13. One final time the beloved woman invites her lover to explore her love. And the context really is just the two of them. Look at verse 10, I am my beloved and his desire is for me. And she makes an invitation, come my beloved, in verse 11, let's go out into the fields, let's go early to the vineyards. And then at the end of verse 12, there, I will give you my love. It's unreserved and willing and intimate. It's also secure, this love that's being celebrated here is celebrated by the whole community, so everybody respects it and honors it, this love. And the lover brings her beloved to her mother's house. She mentions it a couple of times to her mother, there in verse one, and then verse two, I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me. And it's a picture of deep security alongside the intimacy. And then once again, we have for the third time, this refrain, I adjure you, daughters of Jerusalem, that you stir up, don't stir up or awaken love until it pleases. And then in verse five, we've had this before, who is this coming out of the wilderness? But previously it was Solomon with his love train, his kind of love island expression of love And this time, it's just her and her beloved. Who is this coming up out of the wilderness? Leaning on her beloved, just the two of them. And so it's a secure love, but it's also, I mean, it's profoundly exclusive. The only time love is actually kind of explored other than a straight description is there in verses six and seven. And... People have described this as the most memorable and intense piece of the whole book. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy, fierce as the grave, it flashes or flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. For everywhere else in the book, Love is described, here it is analyzed, and love burns, love flashes, it's unquenchable. Uh, it's priceless, it's worth more than your mortgage. Person, if somebody just said, oh, I'll give you the value of my house, you'd be despised for it, because love is so precious, and above all, uh, love, love uh, doesn't perish, it's extraordinarily powerful, love is as strong as death. But do you see at the beginning of verse six, set me, as a seal upon your heart and a seal upon your arm. A seal was a mark of belonging, a mark of commitment. And she is asking her lover that he recognize publicly and permanently, internally on the heart and externally on the arm, that the two of them, just the two of them, belong together. And this is the love that the Bible recognizes up front in Genesis 2 as the love of marriage. It's the only place for safe sex. One man, one woman, till death us do part, intimate, secure, and exclusive. So a couple of comments about a love like this. And the first comes from my mother, who has been reading the Song of Songs alongside us, aged 87 and thoroughly enjoying it. And she said to me, well, darling, it's a love poem, isn't it? Which I thought was thoroughly enlightened of her. And she said, "I've read it alongside uh, alongside everybody else, and, and and it's a love poem." And then she said, "This isn't it interesting that it's what two, three thousand years old, three thousand years, nearly to between two and three thousand, and all the issues are just the same as the issues we face today." Now, people spend three years getting a PhD to write that kind of thing, so I've ordered offered her an honorary PhD from St Helen's Church. But somebody else said this, isn't it good that we have this poem and that this poem is in the Bible because it expresses the deepest emotions and the intense, powerful experiences of us all. And if we didn't have this poem, then when we had those experiences, we'd think there might be something slightly odd or what do we do with them? But actually this poem is showing us that this is one of God's good gifts and it's a a great thing. And isn't it good that it's poetry, said somebody else? Because actually an 11-year-old can read it and not quite understand it. And I sat behind the youth group at the uh, six o'clock and they've been nudging each other like, you know, uh, people in uh, whatever, nudging and winking at one another as they've gone through it. So they're beginning to understand it and then us as adults can read it and there's no watershed. Isn't it good that it's poetry? But as I've read it, I've thought to myself, the author is wanting to press the reset. Take us all the way back to the factory settings, if you like, to go back to Genesis 2. And in a culture that has abandoned biblical love, woe betide a culture that does that, it will quickly go back to the Stone Age. In a culture that has abandoned biblical love, isn't it wonderful? to have this beautiful, intimate, secure, exclusive love celebrated again. So a love like this, and then there's two ways to love. The second point we take from verses eight through 10 of chapter eight. In verses eight and nine, we have some others, possibly her brothers, but not necessarily her brothers, They reflect on the power of love, and they suggest that if love is so precious, then it should be guarded. Verse 9, if she is a wall, our little sister who has no breasts, if she's a wall, we'll build on her a battlement of silver. That is, we will protect her, but make her look beautiful. And if she's a door, we'll enclose her, but with precious boards of cedar. Now, my reading of these verses is that the brothers or the others, as they discuss their sibling sisters, are overprotective. It's almost as if they remove the right of personal authority or autonomy from the woman. Because she replies in verse 10, I was a wall; My breasts were like towers. I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. And my reckoning is that societies do overreact in this way in the face of the abuse of love. It may well be that the abuses of Hollywood, which is thoroughly damaging and abusive to men and women in its portrayal of bad love, which it portrays regularly, and the abuses of the entertainment industry in general and the sexual revolution of the 1960s will result in a a counter-reaction, which will be essentially lock up your daughters. So we see in Islam, and often that's what's happened in cultures, gross excess, damage, appalling abuse, lock up your daughters. And actually this poem doesn't allow for that. But in verses 10 to 12, the woman then reflects on her personal experience that comes from her own autonomy over her own sexuality and I'm happy to speak more about this in the question time, but in verse 10, she insists that she did preserve her love for just one other. I was a wall, my breasts were like towers, I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. Maybe she had been sold in some way or even volunteered from a misguided understanding of the dream of Solomon's harem, and she'd gone into the harem, and then realize the folly. I mean, Love Island works like that, doesn't it, a bit? You have this abusive love held up. Everybody kind of gloats at it and thinks, oh, that would be wonderful. And then the damage, and then the damage. And and many a young girl has done that. But whether she was sold into it or gave herself up to it, she came to her senses, and she, she seems to have come to her senses before Solomon had his ghastly way with her. And so, I was a wall. And then verse 11 reflects on Solomon's harem. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Hamon. He let out the vineyard to keep, as each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. And the vineyard could refer to a physical vineyard, but all the way through, vineyards have been about sexuality. And the fact that there appear to be numerous visitors, a thousand pieces of silver mirrors the number of wives and concubines Solomon had and the fact that she contrasts her exclusive intimate love with Solomon's vineyard persuades me that she is wanting to portray the horrors of a thousand objectified sexual objects in the harem of Solomon. How ghastly Her love is hers alone. My vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, you can have your thousand. And the keepers of fruit, 200. To me, this suggests that possibly Solomon even allowed others into the harem. Doesn't it suggest that? They brought their thousand pieces of silver, almost as if he kind of let it out in some way. And so it is truly a horrific picture almost of sexual slavery. This is Tinder, this is the one night stand, this is the sex bar, this is the consensual love of love outside marriage when it's one relationship after another relationship after another. This is the serial adulterous monogamy of Boris or Mick Jagger or Rod Stewart and the kind of love Celebrated by Love Island. So aptly named, Love Island. Totally isolated. I wish it was called Love Desert Island, because that's what it is. The name of the vineyard is also instructive, Baal Hammond. Nobody knows where Baal Hammond is, probably a fictitious place. But the fact that it's Baal-centered suggests that it's not only a place of industrial adultery, but also of idolatry. And that always happens in the Bible. When you abandon the God of faithfulness, exclusivity, and intimate love, and you go to worship other gods always, dangerous sex and idolatry and adultery go hand in hand. Listen to this description of Solomon back in 1 Kings 11. King Solomon loved many foreign wives alongside the daughter of Pharaoh. Merbi, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonite, Sidianite, and Hittite from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage. He had 700 wives, princesses and 300 concubines and his wives turned away his heart. When Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as was the heart of David, his father." So there's a love like this, and there are two ways to love. And we've said a lot about this, so I'm not gonna say any more. The deep insecurity of sexual love outside of marriage. The psychological, even the physical damage of love, the loneliness of it, ultimately. All of us want to be loved, to be loved exclusively. But you can't take something as precious as this sort of love and hitch it up with one person for six months and another for six years and another for three months and another for 10 years without doing deep personal damage, cheapening it and yourself. And you can begin to see people realizing that. I've got a newsfeed. The sexual counter revolution was on the newsfeed this week. Who wants to be a stripper? Porn will destroy you. Prisoners of sex the ugliness of sex outside marriage. So finally, we move from the cheap counterfeit and we move back to there is a lover like no other with apologies to Flex and the Handsome Boys Club. Under this point, I want to encourage a cautious and a controlled reading of the Song of Songs suggesting that though it is a song about love and a song about human love, a love like this, and a song warning us about the danger of the other kind of love, placed in the Bible as it is, given the place where it is in the Bible, this song encourages the reader to re-engage in a search for a divine love and a lover who loves like no other and let me explain it up front, what I'm hoping should happen. I think, the writer wants us, I think the writer wants us to see how much we're loved. And I think the writer wants us to delight in the love of Jesus and seek him and prize it deeply. So I made the point in week one that over the history of this song's interpretation, number have sought to read sex and human love out of the song. Those who had hangouts about, hang ups about sex did so. Particularly Oregon in the second and third century is reported to have castrated himself. Jerome in the fourth and fifth century is reported to have been in the habit of throwing himself into a thorn bush every time he felt a lustful thought. Well, we're all sexual sinners and all of us have spend a lot of time in the thorns. It's no surprise that such as those have fled the kind of reading we've put on the song over the last couple of weeks. And so, amongst other things, rather than just read it as the poetry a description of love, for example, the two breasts of the woman are the two testaments, left breast the old, right breast the new. The sachet of myrrh between the breasts of the woman is Jesus. The watchmen in the song are the church leaders. And the wine is the teaching of the law, and the milk, the teaching of Jesus. Now, you can understand why people might want to do that, both from the point of view of avoiding putting lustful thoughts into people's heads. Oh, we didn't dare do that. But also because in the Bible, the church is presented as the bride of Christ. And so God and Christ are presented as bridegroom in the Bible, in Isaiah chapter 54, Jeremiah 2, uh, Hosea, Ephesians 5 and the book of Revelation. Furthermore in the Bible the king the Messiah is presented as holding a wedding feast for his bride and as being the ideal groom Psalm 45. So you can really understand why the likes of Oregon and Jerome who have adopted a symbolic reading for their concerns about putting the idea of sex into people's minds might have rushed to that kind of reading. The trouble with it is there's absolutely no control. You can make it say whatever you want. Bernard of Clairvaux, an abbot in the 12th century in Burgundy, in France, preached 86 sermons on the Song of Songs and only got as far as chapter 3, verse 1. That's two verses a week, which would take us into Christmas 2023 just to get to chapter three and July 2024 to complete the book. And I sense we might have exhausted some of the images that we might have wanted to find. More recently, people have sought to read it, obviously, once again, as being just about human sex and love. And that's good, I think. But... There must be more to it than that because if it's in the Bible and because it's where it is in the Bible, there has to be more to it because in the Bible, marriage, love, intimacy, one man, one woman is ultimately about Christ and the church. Now, the seriousness of Solomon's adultery and idolatry should never be overestimated, can never be overestimated. Solomon was the king of Israel. His reign was the pinnacle of Israel's existence to date. God's King Solomon was meant to be a model and a blessing to all the nations around. And Solomon was intended to be the one above all others who evidenced the beauty of God's reign and the intimacy of God's love for his people. Of course, in certain ways, Solomon did that. His wisdom, his wealth, his weaponry. The whole world came to see Solomon. It really was the United Nations under Solomon. Even the queen of Sheba came. And she, when she left, is described as having no more breath left in her. I like to think she said, you take my breath away to Solomon. And so everything in Solomon's time appeared to have been realized of all the great promises of God. And yet, and yet, and yet, he had a vineyard in Baal with a thousand wives and concubines. And it was Baal They led him away into adultery and his adultery produced more idolatry and his idolatry multiplied up his adultery, as is always the way when you turn away from God. He was not faithful. Now, I can't think of any deeply detailed analysis or critique of Solomon's failure in this area other than the Song of Songs which if the Song of Songs wasn't here would produce I think something of a problem for us because Solomon is depicted as being the pinnacle and yet idolatry and adultery. Personally, I'm not persuaded that the song was actually necessarily written by Solomon. The title at the beginning does not demand it. It could equally read the song concerning Solomon or even written about Solomon or to Solomon. And so the song presses the reset and takes us back to the garden and forces us to look for a king who really will fulfill the promises of God for intimacy security, and exclusivity. A love like this. Oh, says somebody, what do we do about the sex? And we do with the sex, precisely what we do with the sex in Genesis 2, verse 24 and 25, which is about Christ as the bridegroom of his church. You know, There won't be sex in heaven. We won't be making babies in heaven. Sex is for personal intimacy and for reproduction on the earth. And so all the poetry of the song forces us to look in the light of the failure of Solomon, beyond Solomon, to a greater king who will actually succeed in the areas where Solomon so hopelessly failed and love us and love us as God promises one will, as he does and I think verses 13 and 14 of chapter eight deliberately take us back to this kind of unfulfilled love. There she is calling to him again and there he is longing for her again, looking forward, looking forward, looking forward. Well, it won't be a surprise to you if you're here visiting that Christians would halt that in Jesus Christ we find such perfect love He loved you to death. He went to the cross for you. He knew every single piece of your backstory. He died to purchase you for himself. He knew what he was getting when he paid the price. He loves you that much. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He was utterly pure, totally safe with women, respected and admired by men. And on the cross, he showed you the price of his love its beauty, its unquenchable nature, its commitment. It's intimacy. And I wonder whether this might really help us as a church as we think about Jesus. There's this little book called Jesus, Lover of My Soul, written by Julian Hardiman, which is a sermon series that he did up at Eden Church. I went and heard him speak um, just a few weeks ago, and it was a very excellent couple of days listening to what he had to say. He wasn't speaking on this book, but this book was strongly advertised by others. And he takes this reading, almost exclusively, actually, of Jesus and saying, you know, you really are free to read it about Jesus and his love for the church and our response in love to him. There is a private walled garden, which is his alone. Nothing needs spoil our meeting with him there. It is a place kept for him, for his delight and ours with him. There we can know and feel his delight in us. We can find fresh joy in the sheer beauty of his person and the sweetness of his salvation. Nothing can take that away. He quotes one or two old hymns which express this so well. Jesus, lover of my soul. We're not going to sing this tonight. Um, The language is just a tiny bit quaint. We're going to sing another couple of fantastic songs which express the same sort of thing. Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly while the nearer waters roll, while the tempest still is high. Hide me, O my saviour, hide, till the storm of life is past. Safe into the haven guide, O receive my soul at last. Other refuge have I now. It's really intimate. Speaking to Jesus as the lover of my soul. All of us know at least what it is to want to be loved. As I say, I have the benefit of coming from a home where I've always known what it is to be loved. It's a wonderful thing. To be loved is to be secure. As relational beings who find our relationships outside of ourselves and so much of identity outside of ourselves, to be loved is to be free, to know that I'm really loved for who I am in spite of all that I've done, to be loved like that is liberating. To be loved is, in a sense, to be whole. All human love is flawed. Jesus, lover of my soul. I met um, a group outside here. They're putting up this new uh, um, piece of sculpture, which is much, much less monstrous than the last one was there. And I was... Saying, what a relief, we got rid of the old one. Suddenly thought, maybe actually it's the same person who did both of them. And then I just did a quick check. And so anyway, a couple of them said, oh, let's go into the church. They came in, I had a walk around. Never met them before, but we had a little wander around. And um, I was talking about the work here. And said, well, how come all people come here? I said, well, we talk about Jesus. And it's so wonderful to know that we're loved by God. Now, Lisa said this to me. She said... um, There is so much out there about attracting positive energy from the universe. You're talking about the same sort of things, but you're talking about Jesus. When I was a kid, they used to talk about those sort of things. But now they just attribute it to attracting it from the universe, whatever it happens to be. In Jesus, you find one who is personal who is committed, who has died for you, and who wants an intimate relationship with you. Here is Julian again. There is the assurance of a love that will never let us go. There is the movement towards us of a lover who meets us in a secret place that cannot be taken away. There is, at the deepest depth of our souls, safety. There is one who will take us back again and again when we're unfaithful to him. There is the promise of protection and security. There is the delight of Christ himself in us. He delights in you. There is a foretaste of the ultimate wedding feast at the end of time, and the rock's solid guarantee of his coming again. And that's where I I want us to finish, because the bridegroom and the bride image finds its culmination in heaven, in the new creation, where we will be with the Lord Jesus as the one who loves us, loving him perfectly, for eternity. This morning, one of my dearest friends and one of the bravest and best Christian workers of my generation died, just a couple of years older than me. He used to do Luke's job, Luke Cornelius' job here in this church in the late 1980s and early 1990s. Somebody wrote to me this afternoon and said this, I hope everybody remembers above all how powerfully and effectively God used Justin to reach into the lives of so many of us with his word, he really was a wonderful friend, a, one of the bravest of men, and a great gospel worker. He died at five o'clock this morning. His wife sent this message. Justin went home early uh, just, Justin went home early this morning. All his struggle and pain. Over at last, safe in the embrace of his Lord and Savior. Now, if you've got that, you are secure. Nothing can take it away from you. You are loved. It's tempting to apply this, isn't it, to all of us in our different, different relational situations. I think that would be very unfortunate at this stage. The main point of application this week is to us. Do we delight in Jesus? Do we seek after Jesus the way the bride seeks her after Christ? Do we rejoice in spending time alone with him? Do we find joy in him? Do we say that? When was the last time you said to Jesus, Lord Jesus, I love you. Do you know that you're loved by him? Because if you do, and if you are, then many of these other issues, which are so complicated, and they're there in every generation, they won't necessarily disappear, but they're a lot easier to deal with. Can I put it like that? with Jesus, lover of my soul. A uh, question just by way of clarification
3: to, to begin with. Uh, William, in the first session, the question says, you said we should bring Jesus in the bedroom. Can you please explain what that looks like? Thank you.
2: <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not sure that's an entirely fair representation of what I said. I, I think I said something along the lines of, um, oh, it's all right having Jesus in the bedroom, but certainly not in the sitting room. Well, you know, In other words, we don't want to talk about this publicly. Um, if you wanted me to talk what that might look like, I think there is such a thing as bad sex even in marriage. We talked a little bit about that last week. I think there are certain sexual practices which the world practiced, which the Bible speaks against. You can find them in Romans chapter 1 and I won't say anything more than that, but um, so I I think there are um, aspects of sexual activity that are godly and ungodly, even in marriage, and it's just worth pondering that, thinking about it for married people.
3: Thank you. Uh, Another question here, why are we all being referred to as sexual sinners here? You've mentioned that a few times in the series, when we have faithful married people among us, as well as single people who appreciate the power of the cross which sets us free from sin, and hence live in a lifestyle that flees from sexual sin. Why are you describing
2: us all as sexual yeah. sinners? Well, because I, I, I want to do that just because I think it's, uh, you, no, I don't want to pretend you know, that I'm perfect, and I don't want to be hypocritical in um, this sort of discussion, and that all Jesus says, if anyone so much as looks at a woman with lust in his eyes, he's already committed adultery with her in his heart. And if, if you have, feel you've never um, crossed that line in any way, um, I, well, come and see me afterwards. I'd love to know what the answer is. But I think all of us, in one way or another, it may be that we've you know, envied other people in this area, coveted in this area. It may be that you know, it has been the eye and the heart, but I think all of us in one way or another um, will have crossed a Andrea line. That's, that's all I'm wanting to say, that we're not trying to hold ourselves as six foot above everybody else. Thank you. Uh, someone sent a few questions. We'll pick up the third of
3: the three questions they asked. A few weeks ago, men were encouraged just to take any women for coffee but then this week, we're taught, it's bad to jump from one person to the next. How do
2: those two applications fit together? Well, I don't think coffee means, will you sleep with me? And that's why I say that. And I, maybe there seems to be a bit of a connection going on in that question. Um, and I think we should not be so kind of loaded in our, well, let's go and have a good time together that it has immediately to mean this is uh, is next to a proposal. Um, And a a lessening of intensity around that, I think, would be healthy for us all. Um, And I think I said intimacy and exclusivity, that we shouldn't advance in intimacy beyond what we're prepared to do in exclusivity. And by exclusivity, I mean for life. And so if we start advancing in intimacy beyond where we're ready to go in terms of for life, then I think we're leading somebody on profoundly unhelpfully. And therefore, if we begin to think about intimacy exclusivity, we can be free to you know, go out for coffee and that sort of thing. And when you're in a group and with others, you know, making hints at intimacy, if you're not actually prepared for exclusivity, I think is very unfair. Um, And especially as you get older, increasingly unfair and wrong. Because you're hinting at something, you're not actually prepared to act on it. And I think that leads a person on, it's very, very unhelpful. But I want to take the heat out of just saying to someone, oh, I've got tickets to the theatre, let's go together, have a good time. It doesn't actually mean, you know, I want to marry you. Which I sense has become slightly in the air, and I think that would help us. But we get this wrong, and like I said last week, you know, we, this is very complicated, and I don't pretend, to, um, although actually the issues are the same in every generation, but I'm not gonna kind of lecture you on how you should, it'll it be different for every one of us, but we do get it wrong, and the pendulum can swing one way and then another in this, but I think there has been a tendency of late at St. Helens as somebody, you know, asks you, to come for a coffee or something, immediately think it's a, you know, will you go out with me? So I think let's take a bit of heat out of that. Jess, do you want to say any more on that?
4: Yeah, I think oh, quite loud. the The two things are quite they're quite different, aren't they? The intention of going for coffee with someone is just to get to know them better and um, to become their friend, or eventually, I guess, the ultimate intention would be marriage. Versus somebody who is just going from one person to the next without that intention and um, having sex with them and then breaking it off and then going to somebody else and doing the same thing. Um, that is not the same as going for coffee with somebody, getting to know them.
3: Really, the, the applications work very well together because you're saying if there's not much intimacy, there doesn't need to be much exclusivity. And if there's lots of intimacy, there should be complete exclusivity. And actually, th- those dovetail very well. Um, do ask someone more about that, if that was your question, and it's not been cleared up by that. Uh, someone's asked, if our marriage isn't like chapters <laughs> 4 and 5, is that a disaster? And then I think they've quite cheekily said,
2: is yours really? No marriage. No marriage <laughs> will be like that. You know, that's the whole point, isn't it? That uh, ac- a- Actually, no marriage is like that, and that's what I tried to talk about last week. Of course, we all have an ideal that we're working towards if we're married and we want it to be that. And, you know, we should reflect on the model of Christ and his church at Ephesians 5 and Christ's love and look vertically to him and his love and seek to model that in our marriage. But no marriage is like that apart from Christ and his church, which is so wonderful that actually there is something that is, And should our marriage, we should seek to have marriages like this, recognizing that we will fail if we're married, that uh, um, we should certainly seek it. Hmm.
3: Various people have asked questions about girls taking the initiative, so questions about whether girls can ask guys out, what does it look like for girls to take initiative, that sort of thing.
2: Uh, Can you say any more than you've already said in the series? It was an observation. You read through the song again, it'll take you 21 minutes and 40 seconds uh, with a long break between the chapters. But you read through and you will see she is an initiative taker. And I simply reflected on in our culture, we got pretty nervous about that, except isn't it on February the 29th? Um, and should we be, or you know, given the initiative that's taken here, uh, that, I don't think, should undermine men taking a lead, but maybe if we're a little less um, uptight in that area. I don't mean everybody's uptight at St. Helens, don't read it like that, but perhaps we are a little bit more kind of um, nervous about that sort of thing. And have, I, I was just saying, look, isn't it interesting? The Song of Songs doesn't seem to be nearly as worried about that as we are.
3: Good. Uh, when you talked about the poem celebrating exclusive love in marriage, what would you say to the non-Christian person who is convinced that exclusivity is clear from the poem, but not convinced that the requirement for
2: marriage is made explicit? That the community celebrates it, and that this poem is in the Bible, where marriage is a publicly recognised... And set me as a seal is kind of the language of contractual recognized, publicly recognized contract. So don't forget it's in the Bible, Genesis 2, therefore, verse 24 and 25, right the way through to the book of Revelation. That is marriage. But then all the language in the poem itself, and particularly set me as a seal, uh, seems to me to speak of a public contractual arrangement. Um, and uh, when all the statistics, you can go and read about it for yourself, that ser- mo- just not having a recognized ceremonial commitment that is publicly recognized by society is significantly more fragile. Now, the Bible tells us that, but interestingly, the statistics bear it out. I think it's quite helpful just to have
3: our definition of marriage rightly understood. I think we can kind of build a view of it, that it's (laughs) gotta be this 20 grand wedding with all of the uh, the things. Trimmings. Trimmings, thank you, uh, put around it. And actually realizing biblically, it is the commitment of one man to one woman for life publicly. What else do we need to add to that?
2: Yes, uh, unless you're already married, in which case you know it's it's not not for you. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. So,
4: and I guess Song of Songs doesn't use the word marriage, but we can tell what it means, and we know that marriage is that definition from Genesis and from other parts of the Bible. And this is one book and part of a bigger book, and so we can take our understanding of marriage from other parts of the Bible and see that here as well.
2: Mm. And I can. Arrange your marriage. I don't mean arrange your marriage. Thanks. I'm happy to help. That's going to end up on the meme page, I'm sure. Let's not worry about that. We don't worry about that. Uh, I can arrange to take your wedding in around about four weeks. And I've done that for people. And um, there have been ten guests. This is outside of COVID. And so don't, you know, if you want to get married, the money is, it's ridiculous, you know all the money. You know, people can often do that, not say often, but regularly over the last 25 years, we've had weddings like that. where people say, look, we can't afford to have a kind of, you know, Posh and Becks wedding, but... Um, but it is that commitment that comes from it being publicly
3: recognized. I can pretend to be exclusive with someone mm. privately, but if I've announced that publicly, it
2: actually becomes a much more secure, and legal. I mean, it's a contract. And I think uh, the language of Genesis 2, and certainly the language of the song, of song set me as a seal, is contractual language. Uh, one last question about
3: uh, love and sex, as we've seen through the series, and then we'll go a bit more onto what we've been thinking about tonight in the relationship with Jesus. Uh, for both of you, how can single people, uh, the person said even those who are same-sex attracted, how can single people help uphold the ideal of love? In Song of Solomon.
2: Do you want to start on that, Jess?
4: Sure. One way, I guess, is appreciating what uh, this picture of love. It tells us something um, that God has given a couple if they're married, and it tells us something about God that He is really good, and so as we're talking to others, um, whether they're married or not, to our friends who believe in the Lord Jesus or don't, the way that we talk about marriage and our relationships with one another, if we're talking about them in a way that reflects the goodness that God has um, given in this gift, uh, that's going to uphold what he's said and rather than um, upholding what the world has said. I guess it's the the way we talk about it to each other.
2: Mm -hmm. And being really positive about it, I think... I think, you know, this song is incredibly positive and we tend, some of us, to major on the negatives, but actually the positives and of a culture that holds marriage high and and the horrors of a culture where marriage is not held high and um, to celebrate and to give thanks to God. I mean, in our own prayers as we give thanks to God for things, to thank God for friends who are getting married and the blessing of it, that's, I'm sure, what all these other, you know, the blokes in the gallery, uh, sorry, the Katie and the two men in the gallery. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Katie. Um, that, you know, that's what that's about. The whole culture is recognizing, and the daughters of Jerusalem who are addressed four times, I think, are kind of idolizing the harem, And she's saying, this is so much better. And I think we can do that and talk to our friends. It's a great way in, just as it's subversive for the the time of the readers. Hang on, Solomon, that's pretty gross. And this, we can use it really well, I think, to talk about the benefits of marriage and family and so forth, even if we haven't experienced it for ourselves.
3: I think as a single guy, I can be tempted to really try and... (laughs) Um, downplay how good a gift sex and marriage are. I was talking to Tracy about this a few weeks ago. Some of you will know Tracy, and I said to her, Look, "I've spent so much time trying to kind of make out that I'm not missing out as a single guy." And she said, "Why? You are. As in, <laughs> sex is a great gift. Marriage is a wonderful gift, and I need to know that that is a great gift, so that I can celebrate it with those who get to enjoy it and appreciate how much better the Lord Jesus is, uh, and what a wonderful thing it is that even while I don't get to enjoy that particular gift." I get to enjoy something even better in the Lord Jesus, uh, which leads us seamlessly on to uh, the stuff a bit more about how this kind of fits into the Bible and how it points us forward to Jesus. William, you said a couple of times, because of where this is in the Bible, it has a particular application. What is the relevance of the location of the book in the Bible? Mm. What were you getting at with that?
2: Well, if, I, if I'm right, um, and you know, I'm not the only person who thinks this is some wild theory, uh, and and chapter 8 verse 10 and 11 is reflecting negatively on solomon he can keep his thousand pieces of silver i have my lover then it must be if it is written by solomon it must be solomon speaking of himself but saying that was awful and i made the hugest blunder but given that Actually, he went on as an idolater and an adulterer to the end. I think it's highly unlikely. And therefore, much more likely that it's written post-Solomon. And if it's written post-Solomon, it's, as it were, on the decline. And looking back at, you know, what, what, what went so horribly wrong and what was ugly about this? And it was the adultery and the idolatry, the move away from the God... And the move into this promiscuous um, sex, and so that then becomes very significant because you're post the peak of Israel's existence, and you're then longing for, as I said it in the talk, you're longing for the one promised in Genesis, who will establish God's kingdom perfectly. I think that's that's it. Have and I sort of vaguely answered? what? I questions? think
3: so, and you've answered the next question. Someone was asking, how did the original readers apply this? I think exactly with that. This is yet another part of the Old Testament that pushes us to long for the Lord Jesus, mm. and how wonderful that we get to read it after we've seen the Lord Jesus come.
2: I think I, want, I do want to not forget the journey we've been on. And I deliberately tried to teach it the way I think we find it. You know, it is poetry, you know, and a lot of us don't listen to poems or read poems for pleasure and that sort of thing. And the way you read it first, you know, there's my mum, it's a love poem. Yeah, but then you read it and it gets under your skin and you think not is, all is not good here. And so you see this bad love, as it were, so-called love, Love Island kind of love. And then you read it a few more times, you begin to say, hang on, it's about Solomon, Solomon's the king, it should have been so different. And so I've tried to take us on the journey. We didn't get further than this is a love poem with my mother. I felt going much further than that wasn't the moment. It's quite difficult to talk about the song of songs with your 87-year-old mother, even if you're 60. I may say 161. Um, someone's asked about uh,
3: if you can go into a bit more detail about why this letter points on to Jesus' love rather than just godly love between husband and wife. I think that's what you've just been doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but do, I think, listen again, if you, if you still haven't been persuaded, I think the best thing to do will be to download the, web, uh, the talk from the website again when it comes out later this week. Uh, question, I think first for you, Jess, what then, if this is, if this is uh, in the end also pointing us to an intimate relationship with Jesus, what does that look like? Mm-hmm. What does it feel like?
4: I think maybe I could say what it should feel like and then where I make some mistakes. So I think um, it looks like recognising that Jesus is a person who, um, who we are in relationship with, um, that we've got a heavenly father who we can speak to, and who actually, in all the things that the Lord promises um, in his word, we can trust those promises. And if we really trust them, um, we do find... Kind of comfort and fulfilment in in those promises. Whether some of those promises are ours um, that we can experience now, um, some of them are things that he's promised us um, in eternity. So the um, bit of revelation that we um, read and I think uh, sang about uh, that kind of her heavenly marriage that's going to happen um, at the end um, is something that we can all look forward to whether we are married or not. That's something that whether I'm single or whether I'm married, um, that relationship with Jesus is going to be the same uh, for me as it is for William in terms of what I can claim from that. And I think sometimes I forget that uh, all that Jesus has said is is true. And when I see things in front of my eyes every day, um, that's often what I'm tempted to focus on. Um, so whether it's marriage or lots of other things that can turn our eyes from Jesus. And so turning my eyes to Jesus and reminding myself of um, his love for me, what we've seen in uh, Song of Solomon, what we see in the rest of uh, the Bible is the way that I can kind of reorient myself um,
2: Do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I mean, the way she pursues her lover, I think is very instructive for us. You know, the Psalm eighty-six where he says, "Give me an undivided heart, Lord." Or the passage in Romans twelve, which a lot of you will have just been reading. You know, um, be zealous, zeal, and there is a An urgency and a pursuit and a delight in the Lord Jesus. And I think we should have that. And I think the main major kind of reminder to me is, you know, when, as I said, when was the last time you said to Jesus, I love you and delight in you? And this relationship is more important than any other relationship in my life. And to actually say that in our prayers. And I think some of the old hymns are the places to go, you know, Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. It may not be quite the language you kind of quite like using, but the next song we're gonna sing. So I sometimes do this when I'm in my own kind of personal study in the morning. I'll sometimes, um, you know, get the old headphones on and um, have a hymn. I sometimes even sing it. (laughs) (laughs) If you come into the office, in the morning, you might just hear my dulcet tones. I've never actually been recruited by Simpo, sadly, to his band. <laughs> I'm hoping still. There's always hope. But some of those, some of the hymns we sing here, and some of the words, they are very, and because they've been written by poets, it takes through what three, four years to write a decent song, and they've been really thought about it. and said. So the poetry is really strong in terms of. Um, the language, and to mean it, and when we're singing it together, you know, to l- look at the songs we're going to sing next, and to mean, to sing it meaningfully. think of that, that sort of thing, and to ask myself, have I got that kind of passion of the undivided soul? It's really important. I think without it, it'll be very hard to last the Christian course.
1: Thanks.